thankful when a preacher uh, leaves for a time, and I'm thankful to have people like Adam and Cody and Samuel and Kent that have been able to fill the pulpit through the years with excellence and uh, know that there's hard work going into the messages. So Adam, thank you very much. A couple uh, announcements I need to, to make you aware of. Next week, we launch a brand new series. It's just a four-week series looking at what's it mean to be a good neighbor. Love where you are. We're going to try to look at what we've talked about this summer in the book of Acts and see how can we put that to, into place in our lives, in our families, in our community. And, and so I'm really looking forward to that. Probably the biggest thing that's happening next week, though, is we're going to celebrate uh, just a man that has given a, a lifetime to ministry and, and a, a big part of his lifetime to this church. Next Sunday is a celebration for Kent Hickerson, and that's going to take place at 9.30. I know many of us don't get to church till 10.45 or 10.50 or 10.55, but I'm going to encourage you all to come out. 9.30 next Sunday morning, we will have refreshments, some of his favorite snacks, I believe, and uh, we, we really need to give honor to whom honor is due. A love offering will be taken next week, and I really hope that you'll be here to celebrate Kent. 33 years of ministry with our church. That's just, uh, that's unprecedented, and we're just so thankful for his incredible ministry and the love that he has, first of all, for the Lord and for this church. So that's next Sunday. Two weeks from today, we're doing a hymn sing at 4 p.m., so if you miss singing the hymns, come out at 4 p.m. and we're going to sing hymns for about an hour. It's going to be a great time. And then we'll enjoy a light supper following that in the Family Life Center. Saturday, August 20. Anybody know what's happening that morning? The first annual Clinton Triathlon. And many of you need to sign up and join me and swim 400 yards and bike 12 miles and run a 5K. It's a piece of cake, I promise. And if you want to, do a relay. Some of you could swim, some of you could bike, some of you could run. It's going to be a blast. That's three weeks from yesterday. Um, just love our why here at Clinton. Hopefully you love our why here at Clinton. And it's cool that they're stepping out and trying to do this. And I would love to see FCC have just huge support behind this, uh, this first annual Clinton Triathlon. And then on the 28th is our second annual block party. Last year we estimate somewhere between 550 and 600 people were there. We're hoping for many, many more this year. Mark it down four weeks from tonight, block party from 5 to 7 p.m. Well, it's hard for me to believe this, but this is week nine of nine. Looking at the first part of the book of Acts, we started way back on June 5 with a message on the birthday of the church, and I'm not going to rattle through all of those, but we have journeyed really pretty much verse by verse through the first 12 chapters of the book of Acts, and kind of the launching verse was found back in chapter 1 before Jesus' ascension. He said to his disciples that you, the disciples, were going to be his witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And we looked at the disciples being witnesses in Jerusalem, and that was the first six or seven chapters, and now we've been in Judea and Samaria. And, and when we come back at the end of October and pick up the book of Acts again, we're going to look at the ends of the earth. We're going to look at the missionary journeys. Today's chapter, Acts chapter 12, is what I would kind of call a wedge chapter. If you were looking at the, the book of Acts and you tried to categorize Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and the ends of the earth, this is kind of a wedge chapter. 
And a lot of preachers skip Acts chapter 12. A lot of Bible studies, when they're going through the book, because it's such a long book, they just skip it. But that's a mistake because there's some real life and real faith lessons for us in Acts chapter 12. But before I can get to those lessons, I need to give you some background on three individuals. The major player, once again, is Peter. Much of what we've studied has been about Peter and his life as an apostle for the early church. But three other names you need to be aware of. You're going to learn about a James. And this is a James that should be familiar to you. In verse 2, James is going to die, sadly. This is James, the brother of John, one of the sons of Zebedee. He was part of Jesus's inner triangle in the Gospels. We're not reading much about James in the book of Acts. That doesn't mean that he walked away from the faith because he didn't. He's just not really prominent, um, according to Luke, as he wrote the book of Acts. But that, that's the first James we're going to meet. We're also going to meet a guy by the name of Herod. There are actually five Herods that are mentioned in the New Testament. This is Herod Agrippa I, and he was the grandson of Herod the Great and the son of Aristobulus. If you want to know about all five Herods, I've got a piece of paper at the Welcome Center. You're welcome to grab the five Herods in the New Testament. This is Herod Agrippa I. And then the third person you need to know about is James. Obviously not the James of chapter 2 because he has passed away. This is James, the half-brother of Jesus, the author of the book of James, and really the leader of the church at Jerusalem. So with that, let me give you my big point today. If you're tired or you rode your bike for 500 miles last week or whatever it is and you're, you're only getting one thing today, this is the one thing I want you to get. Acts 12 reminds us things are not always like they seem. Things are not always like they seem. So um, with that, let's dive in. And just like with every other message that I've shared from Acts, I've kind of got four sub-points that I want you to grab a hold of as we journey through this text together. Number one is this, believe it or not, bad things happen to God's people. Bad things happen to God's people. I love the song that we were singing, Cornerstone. Um, you know, through the storm, he is Lord of all. I need to be reminded of that. We need to be reminded of that, that when bad things come our way, even though we are people of faith, even though we are Christ followers, we're going to endure the storms of life. And the beginning of Acts chapter 12 is certainly a storm of life. Let's read the text, Acts chapter 12, beginning with verse 1. It was about this time that King Herod, Herod Agrippa I, arrested some who belonged to the church intending to persecute them. He had James, the brother of John, son of Zebedee, put to death with the sword. When he saw that this pleased the Jews, he proceeded to seize Peter also, and this happened during the Feast of Unleavened Bread. After arresting him, he put him in prison, handing him over to be guarded by four squads of four soldiers each. That's overkill. Peter's a preacher. Peter's a fisherman. And he's being guarded by four squads of four soldiers each. Herod Agrippa intended to bring him out for public trial after the Passover. So Peter was kept in prison, but the church was earnestly praying to God for him. Believe it or not, bad things happen to God's people. And what we see here is a tough reality unfolding. A tough reality being presented to the followers of Christ. What's that tough reality? James is executed, Peter is arrested, and Herod is seemingly on top of the world. And we study folks in the Bible, we see modern day people that we would look at and we would say they are everything a follower of Jesus is not. 
They seem to be ruthless, they may be diabolical, whatever word you want to throw in there, and you look at them and they're successful. And you look at it and you say, that's not fair. I don't like that. And then you see really godly people who have tried to live strong for Christ endure storms and you think, what in the world is going on? If you've ever been there, if you've ever found yourself saying, why God? Maybe in your circumstance or the circumstances of those around you, you are, whether you realize it or not, engaging in a study we call theodicy. Theodicy is the study of why people of faith encounter suffering. Now, you could turn on your television today, and you could find preachers that would tell you that if you just love God more, you won't endure any suffering. If you just give that evangelist more, good things are coming your way. The only problem with that is that's not what the Bible says. And a tough reality of life is that bad things happen to God's people. Storms of life visit us. And if you're here today and you said, Greg, I've never tasted a storm of life. I've got some encouragement for you. Just wait. It'll come. That's a reality of life. We will endure tough time. So what do we do with that? Well, I want to give you some encouragement from the book of 1 Peter. My Sunday school class, the Faith Builders, we studied 1 Peter the first part of this year. And I love what chapter 4, verses 12 and 13 say. Dear friends, do not be surprised at the painful trial you are suffering as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice that you participate in the sufferings of Christ so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. And and so that's not pie in the sky. That's not the preacher saying suffering's really no big deal. Suffering's a big deal. It stinks when we go through storms of life. But we have to look at things through kingdom lenses. We have to understand things may not always be as they seem. Lesson number two this morning, believe it or not, the power of prayer is great. And hopefully, if you've been with us for a while, you understood that, especially during the month of May, when we studied the book Extreme Prayer and Samuel led us with lessons on Wednesday nights and Dr. Neil Windham from LCU came over and had a very special message on prayer and we tried to glean what we could from uh, extreme prayer by by Greg Pruitt of PBT. But that's a lesson that we need to grab a hold of. The power of prayer is great and the text tells us all about that. Verse 6. The night before Herod was to bring Peter to trial, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains And sentries stood guard at the entrance. Translation, Peter's going nowhere. Peter's going to be at trial the next day. Herod Agrippa I is not messing around. Verse 7, suddenly an angel of the Lord appeared and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him up. Quick, get up, he said. And the chains fell off Peter's wrist. Then the angel said to him, put on your clothes and your sandals. Peter did so. Wrap your cloak around you and follow me, the angel told him. So Peter followed him out of the prison, but he had no idea what was, that what the angel was doing was really happening. Peter thought he was seeing a vision. Two weeks ago, Adam led you through Acts chapter 10. Peter had a vision. The vision was that the gospel is for what? Some of the people? No, the gospel is for everyone. And Peter needed a, a change of perspective. And we may need a change of perspective. We need to, may need to change our worldview. 
We may need to change our, our mindset when it comes to who is the gospel available for. Peter thought this was just another vision. Verse 10. They passed the first and second guards and came to the iron gate leading to the city. It opened for them by itself and they went through it. When they had walked the length of one street, suddenly the angel left him. Believe it or not, the power of prayer is great. Before I left for Iowa, I spent some time with um, several commentaries on this chapter. And one really grabbed me. James Montgomery Boyce has a commentary in the book of Acts. And in it, he, he details some prayer lessons. And these are really prayer lessons we learned back in May. I want to um, just share it with you as a refresher. If you were with us in May or if you weren't, maybe this will be new. But number one, the Christians were praying to God. It's kind of common today to to throw out maybe on Facebook or throw out you know in some sort of a group message you know if you pray pray if you not give me good thoughts here's the situation that I'm facing these people weren't just asking for good thoughts they were praying to God they were acknowledging that God was an awesome God secondly they were praying together There was power in numbers. I loved what happened on May 22nd. And I'm going to miss some of the people that were with our group. But Ken and Susan Klein, Marla, myself, Tim Winthy, and I know I met Karen Rice, I think, was with us. We prayed all over Little Galilee Camp. We got out there about 6 o'clock and we hit Outpost and Wilderness and the Lodge and the Dining Hall and the Activity Center and the High Ropes Course. And we just prayed, God, use this camp. Make this camp the greatest it can possibly be for your glory. We prayed that there would be decisions for Christ. And as I was getting ready yesterday afternoon, I saw the message from Ken Rutledge that Little Galley, for the first time in their history, passed over the 2,000 registered campers this summer. And it's just awesome to see something that you prayed for and God answering that prayer. And so praying together, there's power when we pray together. The Christians were praying earnestly. They weren't distracted. They weren't wondering about the baseball score. They weren't wondering about what am I going to have for lunch tomorrow. They were earnest in their prayer. And then I think this is huge. Number four, they were praying specifically. Too many times our prayers are way too general. That was a lesson I learned as I read through extreme prayer in May. My prayers have been way too generic, way too broad brush. And there's a time for broad brush prayers, but there's a time for very specific prayers. These Christians were praying specifically. 1 Peter 5, 7 says, cast all your cares on him because the Lord cares for you. He cares for you. And somebody asked me not long ago, is there something so small, is there something so insignificant that we really shouldn't waste our time praying over? Are there things that just really don't matter? Do we only need to focus on the big stuff? And I would say, if it's a burden to you, give it to the Lord. It doesn't say cast some of your cares on him. It doesn't say cast most of your cares or cast the important cares on him. It says cast all of your cares on him, he cares for you. Believe it or not, the power of prayer is great. Number three, believe it or not, you have to believe. This is where the text turns uh, somewhat comical from my perspective. I don't know if you will find humor in this or not, but uh, it makes me chuckle every time that I read beginning with verse 11. When Peter came to himself and said, now I know without a doubt that the Lord sent his angel and rescued me from Herod's clutches, a supernatural deliverance, and from everything the Jewish people were anticipating. Verse 12. 
When this had dawned on Peter, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, also called Mark. This is John Mark, who's going to be a part of the first missionary journey. He's going to go on later in life to write the Gospel of Mark. And so they're at the home, and many people had gathered, and they were praying. Verse 13, Peter knocked at the outer entrance, and a servant girl named Rhoda came to the door. When she recognized Peter's voice, she was so overjoyed, she ran back without opening it and exclaimed, Peter is at the door. Now, verse 5 of our text said that the Christians were earnestly praying for Peter. They're praying that Peter is going to be released. Even though we've got the four squads of four soldiers each, they're praying. The servant girl comes running in, Peter's at the door. What are they going to say? They're going to say, praise God from whom all blessings flow, right? They're going to say, our God is an awesome God, right? Not so much. Verse 15, you are out of your mind, they told her. When she kept insisting that it was so, they said, well, it must be an angel. But Peter kept on knocking... And when they opened the door and saw him, they were astonished. Peter motioned with his hand for them to be quiet and described how the Lord had brought him out of prison. Tell James and the brothers about this, he said, and then he left for another place. In the morning, there was no small commotion among the soldiers as to what had become of Peter. After Herod had a thorough search made for him and did not find him, he cross-examined the guards and ordered that they be executed. Herod Agrippa I is not a good person at all. And so here's the deal. This is a modern day problem for a lot of Christians. This may be a modern day problem for you. Praying without believing. Praying without truly believing God is going to answer the prayer. Been, been there before? Someone's asked you to pray, so you're going to pray and you pray, but you're saying, I don't think... God's answering that prayer. That one's just a little too tough. Not, not sure that's going to happen. And when we do that, James says we're totally missing the mark. We're totally missing the point. James 1.5, a, a lesson that we learned during our combined Bible school class several weeks ago says that when we ask God, we must believe. We have to believe. We cannot doubt. And I will tell you, that's difficult at times. That's a challenge at times. And so I would encourage you to learn from the, these first Christians and the mistakes that they made. When you pray, pray with belief in mind. Do not allow doubt to creep into your prayers. Pray with anticipation. Pray believing that God will answer your prayers. James 5.16, the prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective. Prayer is powerful. That was lesson two, but lesson three is you have to believe. Number four, believe it or not, God is in control. And this is where the text gets pretty disgusting. I've got to just tell you that. Rarely do I stand in the pulpit and say, watch out for the next couple verses if you have a weak stomach because it may be a little disgusting. But the end of Acts chapter 12 is pretty disgusting. And now that I have your attention, let's read the text together. Herod went from Judea to Caesarea and stayed there for a while. He'd been quarreling with the people of Tyre and Sidon. They now joined together and sought an audience with him. 
Having secured the support of Blastus, a trusted personal servant of the king, they asked for peace because they depended on the king's country for their food supply. Agrippa is on top of the world. Herod Agrippa I, everything seems to be rolling into place for him. That's about to change. Verse 21. On the appointed day, Herod, wearing his royal robes, sat on his throne and delivered a public address to the people. They shouted, this is the voice of a God, not of a man. How many of you like a compliment? We like a compliment, right? Uh, This is way over the top here. But he's just soaking it up. We're going to study when when Paul and Barnabas have a similar type situation in Acts chapter 14. They handle it much different than Herod did here. They have a much different outcome than Herod did here. But Herod's soaking it in. He's believing his own press. Verse 23, immediately. Because Herod did not give praise to God, an angel of the Lord struck him down And he was eaten by worms and died. Yuck. Go home and share with your Methodist or Presbyterian friends that you studied in church today, Herod being eaten by worms. They're going to want to know more, I promise you. Verse 24, but the word of God continued to spread and increase. See, here's the point. God's in control. Herod, seemingly on top of the world, seemingly has it all, but his reign is short-lived. He didn't even know it, but he was on the clock. His reign is short-lived. And so, if I had advice for Herod Agrippa I, I would tell him that he should have considered the proverb that James and Peter both wrote about, that God opposes the proud but he gives grace to the humble. God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And so I'm just taking a a 30-second time out from this sermon to just throw something on your plate that's kind of extra this morning. Where would you say you're at, spiritually speaking, when it comes to pride, when it comes to humility? Those of us that have been around Jesus a long time, I think one of our greatest challenges, spiritually speaking, is to not allow spiritual pride to get the best of us. When we allow spiritual pride to puff us up, we can't be the followers of Jesus that he wants us to be. We start looking at people in a really awful way, judgmental way, hurtful way. We forget that that we're all blessed by the grace of God. We're all sinners. We've all missed the mark. God opposes the proud but he gives absolute grace to the humble. And so just a word of encouragement, if, if maybe you've been a little too puffed up, spiritually speaking, just, just remember, Jesus modeled humility, and we see right here from someone who's not a Christian, Herod Agrippa I, the, the real damage that pride can do. Take away verse 2 Corinthians 5, 7, we live by faith, not by sight. It's kind of a summary verse of the entire chapter. And so as I conclude this morning, I I want to just draw a comparison between the beginning of Acts chapter 12 and the end of Acts chapter 12. As Acts chapter 12 begins, James is dead, Peter is in prison, and Herod's winning. If we want to think in terms of winning and losing, he, he is winning. He's on the winning team. He's on a roll. He's triumphing. 
And yet by the end of the chapter, Herod is dead, the whole eaten by worms thing. Peter is free. And look, look what's winning. Look what is triumphing here. The word of God is winning. The word of God is triumphing. I love verse 24 of our text. The word of God continued to increase and spread. That's been a theme all the way through this book of Acts. Is when the suffering comes, when bad things happen to God's people, God arrives, God delivers, and the word of God continues to increase. The word of God is winning. And so as I leave you this morning, my bottom line for you, especially if you're going through a storm of life. Uh, I had someone come up to me after first service and say, um, I have the worst week I've had in a long time. I needed to hear this scripture today. I needed to be reminded of this truth today. Never forget, the Lord really is in control. Let's pray. God, thanks for today. Thank you for the chance to, uh, to be in your word and, and just thank you for, for how you deliver, your deliverance. I read Acts 12, and um, it's just incredible how you arrive at, at the opportune time. And God, in our lives, uh, some of us today, we're in that storm. We're living the, the bad things playing out. And... Uh, and we need you to arrive, God. We need you to, to bless us. We need you to deliver us. God, whatever happens in this world, we know that the victory is already won because of the hope of Jesus Christ, because Jesus is the cornerstone. Whatever happens in this world, we know that our future is bright. And so thank you for Jesus. It's in his name that I pray. Amen. We're, we're going to sing one final song to, to wrap up our time this morning. And this will be a song of commitment. If you uh, would like to talk with someone about what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ, I'm up front, Adam's in the back. We, we'd love to have the opportunity to, to pray with you this morning, to talk with you about what it means to be a follower of Jesus. If, if you're going through a storm of life, I just want to specifically tell you, I'd love to pray with you this morning and pray through the storm as we stand together. And Samuel leads us in the band. In our time of desperation, no, he knows doubt and fear. There is only one foundation We believe We believe In this broken generation When all is dark you help us see There is only one salvation You believe You believe We believe in God the Father We believe in Jesus Christ 